You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Good morning, Harvest. My name's Craig Turnbull, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here on staff. And I also get to be the guy who moves us ahead in this great series that we've been going through, the Bible as one book. And we've been walking through, remind you that we've been walking through a book that was really helpfully written for us, uh, not for us, but for the church in general, called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. And so far, we have been walking through certain sections, and today we turn to a rather large section of Scripture. I did the math. It's 424 chapters in God's Word we're going to cover today. 500 pages of God's Word today. 1,000 years of history today. Okay. (laughs) Now, if you're not careful, I'll just say this right now. If you're not careful, you're going to get buried under content. Uh, Our poor production team, I have thrown at them 23 slides today which you can all download. You don't need to get your cameras and take pictures of. You can get them after the service. But there's a lot of content today. And if you're not careful, you're going to get buried under that content. But that is not the goal of today. The goal of today is not to give you lots and lots of content. The goal of today is really the goal of John chapter 5, this verse here, Jesus' words. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You look through God's word and you need to see that the scriptures bear witness. They testify to me and to who I am, says Jesus. You know, we've got this this wonderful little sermon graphic that that lays out the whole thing. It's this puzzle piece, right? This is is great. It kind of details where we're going on on these eight weeks ahead. But there's a superimposed image. You've seen this, right? What does that look like? This This is my goal today. Just make that next slide. That is what my goal is today. My goal today is to pull out of this kingdom narrative the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate goal of this series. It's the goal of my life. It's the goal of this church. It's the goal of every believer. Yes, 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 to see how the Bible fits together. That's important, yes. Yes, 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 to trace the kingdom narrative and to walk it through the pages of God's word. Yes, that's important. But then, but then, to glorify Jesus Christ. That's the end goal. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. That's the goal. The goal is Jesus here today. It's the goal every weekend. That's my goal. The God who goes into bondage that we might be freed. The God who loses greatly so that we could win. The God who gives up so much so that we could have immeasurable gain. The God who surrenders his life so that we might find life in him. That's the goal of today's message. To see and to worship Jesus. But in this series, we've been given a tool that helps us get to this goal. It's this understanding of kingdom. As Vaughn Roberts describes kingdom, he says it's this. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And next slide, remind you again where we have been. We have been in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with the pattern of the kingdom. 
And then we saw the perished kingdom, which is Genesis 3. And then last weekend, in, 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 in seven or so verses, we walked through the promised kingdom. So we, we had two chapters there, one chapter there, seven verses there, and 424 chapters there. That's where we're going today. Last weekend, in the promised kingdom, uh, God gave some specific promises to Abraham. Do you remember them? Just our next slide here. He said, I will make you a great nation. God promises to get the people. God promises to bring rule and blessing. I will bless you and make your name great. And, and, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then lastly this, God promises to give them a place. He says, I'll give you and your offspring this land that you're about to see. So out of the promised kingdom, God's created a little bit of a checklist. And this is how we're going to walk through our time together today as we walk through this checklist. This is what God's got to do out of Genesis 12. He's got to get the people. He's got to give them lots of blessing. He's got to get them a place to live. And then part of the blessing is that he's going to give them someone to rule over them. And Roberts, in his really helpful book, tells us how this is going to play out in the partial kingdom. And we can see our next slide. The, the partial kingdom, God's going to get the people in Genesis 12 through Exodus 18. God's going to give them rule and blessing in Exodus 19 through Leviticus. God's going to give them a place in Numbers through Joshua. And then he's going to give them a king in Judges through Second Chronicles. God's people, we're going to talk about that today. God's rule and blessing, we're going to talk about that today. God's place, we're also going to hit those books. And God's king, we're also going to hit those books. Okay? That's where we're going today. That's God's plan for us today. It's a big job, but we've got a big lesson to begin. 1,000 years of history. Should we look and see how the scriptures bear witness to the Lord? That's what we're going for today. These things written for our instruction. Okay, you ready? How is he going to do this? <laughs> Point number one, God's people. God's people partially created. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead, jump ahead to, to Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to meet you there in just a second. But for now, just listen to the story. Let's pick the story up again with Abraham. Let me tell you what happens. Immediately after the remarkable promises are given to Abra Abram in Genesis chapter 12, given, promises given to, I remind you, a 75-year-old man, he and his wife Sarai migrate along the Mediterranean coastline to the Sea Empire of Egypt. And at the time that Abram steps his sandals into the boundary lines of Egypt, Egypt is not only a global superpower and has been for over a thousand years, the pyramids that we see in Egypt even today, those pyramids by the time of Abram have been standing for over 500 years. This is the global superpower. And Abram, with just his wife and his caravan, tells the leader of this nation, the most powerful man in the world, that his wife Sarai is actually his sister. She kind of is, but that's not the point. He tells the king this so that it would go well for him, so that he would get lots of possessions as a result of this. If that sounds like a very despicable thing to do, well, it is, and God thinks it is too. God puts a stop to this, and he protects Sarai, and he protects Abram, and he protects, most importantly, his promises that he alone will bring the blessing to Abram. 
God does not need a foreign power to do this. He does not need the help of rulers or emperors. He's the one who sets up rulers. He's the one who takes down emperors. This is going to be God's plan the entire way. 20 years pass after this rescue, and God brings along a son to a 100-year-old man and a 90-something-year-old woman, and that son is named Isaac. He's the son of now Abraham, renamed, and Sarah, renamed. And his name, Isaac, means this, if you want to write it down, LOL. That's what it means, because it's a joke. God gave a promise to a 90-year-old man, and now a baby to a 100-year-old man. This is incredible. Who would ever think of something like this? This is hilarious. But God's not laughing. And here, by the way, is where God plays his miraculous birth card for the very first time in scripture. A blessing through miraculous birth. Time passes. Abraham is told now to take this teenage son to one of the mountains in the land of Moriah. And there on one of the hills, he stacks upon the shoulders of his beloved son the wood that would then serve in a moment for the sacrifice of that son. God tells this 120-year-old man to take his teenage son up the hillside, the son that he loves the most, and to sacrifice him. And Abraham is willing to obey. And so is the son, by the way, who could easily have overpowered his father. And by the way, Moriah, the land where they were called to sacrifice, Moriah is now in what is modern-day Jerusalem one of the hillsides outside of Jerusalem. On one of the hills, an obedient son carries the wood on his back up a hill to be sacrificed. But God stays Abraham's hand. He protects Isaac, he protects Abraham, and he offers in the place of the son a sacrifice. A substitution for life is given. A sacrifice is given for salvation. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Do do you see him? Isaac is an important stop on our tour, but we need to keep moving because we've got 414 chapters left to go. Isaac has a son, a couple sons. One of the sons is named Jacob. Jacob would then have 12 sons and the second to last son is named Joseph. This son goes off to Egypt in chains because of his brothers. But in a couple of decades, he becomes the executive leader of Egypt, which is still the most powerful nation in the world. And at this great moment of prominence, God has placed this man in power. And then he carries the remaining sons of Jacob, the offspring of Abraham, down into Egypt and settles them in a land called Goshen. That seems strange to settle a people in the land of Goshen, but there's a key reason why God does this. Joseph, as second in command in the kingdom, turns to Pharaoh as first in command in the kingdom and says, my people are shepherds, and they are. But shepherds are icky to the Israelites. They don't want to be around shepherds. They don't want to talk with shepherds. They don't want to even associate with shepherds. They become instantly second-class citizens, and soon 
they'll turn into slaves. What God is doing is he takes his people, he picks them up, dangered as they are, few in number, only 70, brings them through a, through a fertile crescent down into the land of Egypt, into the nest of the most powerful nation in the world, and will not allow them to be assimilated. He grows them, he incubates this people until the perfect moment. And God will use even the evil plans of men to accomplish his perfect plans. That's the book of Genesis. Now, 400 years pass. 400 years tick by on the clock. And then God says, now. Now is the time they come out of the land. Now is the time they come out of the land. And so now we meet Moses. The Israelites go from 70 walking into Egypt, somewhat marginalized, into about a million completely enslaved. Now that's a big slave labor force, and Pharaoh, the king of still the strongest nation in the world, this Pharaoh doesn't want to see this force leave. Despite Moses' repeated charges to Pharaoh on behalf of the Lord to let his people go, let his people go, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and it will take an amazing series of plagues to break the grip of the most powerful man in the world. And the 10th plague in particular comes along. The 10th plague that would see the deaths of the firstborn sons, Jew or Gentile, it didn't matter, it, unless you did something specific to be saved. Unless you obeyed the Lord and did something to save your family, you would lose your son. And here's where we make our first pit stop. You've got your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 12. Look at verses 5 through 7. You shall take a lamb, and your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. The cost of the firstborn son is given. Unless you sacrificed a lamb in his place, you would lose a member of your family. Redemption from slavery is going to cost you the life of a lamb. But you can substitute this sacrifice of your life for this lamb, and you could be saved, and you could be preserved. God offers you a choice, freedom and life, freedom and life found through a lamb. And all you had to do as you slayed the lamb is take some hyssop, which is a branch, and dip it into the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel. Watch the action on the doorposts and on the lintel. On the doorpost and the lintel. And then the punishment that was coming would pass over your house and you would be saved. It's a substitution for life. It's a sacrifice for life. It's a lamb in your place for life. You search the scriptures, and it's they that bear witness about me. Do you see him? And on that, on that dark night, as the walls of the houses uh, uh, wail out of those who have lost their children, and Pharaoh with clenched fists says, go! The Israelites, one million strong, are brought out of captivity 
after 430 years. But almost immediately, they've got a problem. Because Pharaoh, the strongest man in the world, changes his mind. Just like that. No, no, that's too many people. That's too strong a labor force. I need those people. He hardens his heart and he chases them and he pins them against the Red Sea. But God will be pinned by no man. Even the strongest man in the world is a weakling compared to our God. And God opens the Red Sea like a door and one million people walk through on dry ground while the Lord himself serves as the rear guard in a pillar of fire. Fire at the back, water on the sides, and the people of Israel walk to freedom. To freedom. Now one artist has, has pictured this this way, and I love this picture. I don't know the title of this, this painting, but I call it Boom. Water on the sides fire at the back, and God would wash away the most powerful nation in the world to bring out the weakest nation in the world. Salvation by substitution, salvation by conquest, salvation by the Lord. And God goes to his checklist and says, got the people. Point number two, God's rule and blessing partially commenced. Here again, I want you to turn to Leviticus 16 while I'm talking, and I'll meet you there in just a jiffy. God has saved his people, but how then, if God has saved his people, if God has demonstrated himself to be this kind of powerful God, how do you live in relationship with this kind of God? How do you live under his rule? How do you function in community with this God? If God is this powerful Shouldn't you understand what life is like around this God? Enter the law. Now I want you to see this though. God's salvation comes before the law is given. And these laws, they're not laws to save you. They're laws to bless you. And so God, in the beginning, in Exodus 19, and for, throughout the rest of the first books of the Bible, these first five called the Pentateuch, God would give a total of 613 commands to his people to bless them. By the way, they do not come all at once. This Pentateuch looks like this. We've seen Genesis talked about this. We're now in the middle of Exodus, beginning the giving of the law. And God will give these 613 commandments bits at a time. And they usually follow narrative structures, narratives of failure. So God brings the people out of the land and gives them the Ten Commandments right at the beginning, right, in the, right at the beginning at Mount Sinai, and then the people rebel and set up the golden calf. Then God gives more laws to set up the tabernacle and then, and then and talks about their failures in Leviticus. And then the people complain and the people rebel and God gives more laws and more laws and more laws, again, seeking to protect them, seeking to bless them, seeking to tell them, how do you live in relationship with me? At every moment along that storyline, in those first five books, God is the one who gives grace. God is the one who preserves. God is the one who forgives. God is the one who protects his people, even despite their disobedience and their rebellion. These 613 laws come in, and they establish a relationship with this God. Now, key to this, in this law period of rule and blessing, is this thing called the tabernacle. 
The tabernacle is the visible presence of God in the midst of Israel. This was a mobile tent. In the ancient Near East, as well as in modern day, right up until about 200 years ago, when a foreign army or a foreign king would march forward, the king was always at the center of the troop. He would always pitch his tent right in the middle of his camp, serving as a ruler over the camp and also a protector over the camp. And when the army marched, the king would walk to the front of the line. That's exactly how the tabernacle was to be carried in the wilderness. The tabernacle was to be set up. By the way, the tabernacle was set in the center of Israelites as they camped and as they marched, and they would march in this shape, with, with Israelites in the front and Israelites in the back and Israelites to the side of each. They would march in this way and so depict the presence of the Lord as he would lead them through this wilderness. Now, Exodus closes with the final creation of the tabernacle. And we read this in Exodus, uh, chapter, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud, the presence of God, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But notice, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to do this. And then we flip a page to get to Leviticus chapter 1, 1, and we see the same. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The voice goes out of the tent of meeting to Moses who's on the outside. But then, notice, we see this in Numbers chapter 1. Numbers 1, 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Moses has seen the creation of the tabernacle. He's been on the outside of the tabernacle. He's been instructed on the outside of the tabernacle. But one book later, he's inside the tabernacle in close communion and fellowship with God. What's happened? God's rule and blessing has been extended to the people. And as they live in obedience to this, they, they, they reap the rewards of an intimate relationship and fellowship with God. 613 laws. But God knows the heart of man. Since the very beginning, man has sought to forfeit blessing of relationship with God. He has sought to walk in his own way. Sin always surfaces. And so something more is needed. And here's where we make our second pit stop. In the middle of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus uh, chapter 16, we find this fascinating detail on the Day of Atonement. In the very middle of the book, in the Hebrew, that's the most important place in the book of Leviticus. The middle point is the most holy day in all of Israel. Here's some of what happens on this day. Leviticus 16, verse 15. Then, then the high priest, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil, inside the holy of holies, inside the holy place with the blood and, and did what he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it on, over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And when he has made, this is verse 20, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. We've had a goat sacrificed and now we have a live goat. Verse 21, and Aaron, the high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put on the head of the live goat and send it into the wilderness by the hand of the man who's at the readiness. 
You see what's happening here? This is the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. Despite all of the Israelites' efforts, Israel cannot be free from the blemish of sin. They need God's help to be cleansed from sin. Sin must be atoned for. And the high priest would lay his hands and confess sin upon an animal, and then that animal would be sacrificed. One animal would be sacrificed. Another one would be set free. And the sins of the people were removed from the presence of the people. You see this? The priest kills an animal and sacrifices its blood. The goat dies so the people can live. One animal sacrificed while others go free. One animal lost for the sake of the entire nation. Do you see him? Salvation by substitution, salvation by sacrifice, salvation by the Lord. And the Lord says to us, You search the scriptures. And it's they that bear witness about me. These shadows of the reality that was to come, they help maintain the relationship with God for Israel. And as long as they remain obedient to this, the fellowship with God and man can continue. The blessing comes to the people of Israel. And God goes to his checklist and says, okay, I've got my second box ticked now got my people, have given them a way to find the greatest blessing possible. That's 175 chapters down, people. We got 250 to go. Point number three, God's place. God's place partially captured. You know the drill by now. Please turn to Joshua 5. I will see you there in a second. Joshua 5 is where we're going to land. The Israelites now are, are brought before Joshua 5. They're brought to the edge of the promised land in the book of Numbers. Uh, chapter 13 specifically, and Moses, who is still alive, sends in 12 spies into the land, the promised land, the land that, the land that is flowing with milk and honey. And two of these spies come back, and they say, the land is amazing. It's exactly as God has described. God has given us this land. Let's go up and do it. Two of them come back with positive reports. The other 10 come back, and they are freaking out. There is no way we can do this. And what follows is an open revolution against Moses, or at least an attempt to do that. But God brings that to a swift end. And in one of the saddest moments in Scripture, God promises to give the Israelites exactly what they wanted. They don't want the good land. He won't give it to them. He won't make them go in. This land, the promised land of blessing, will pass from their hands to the hands of their children. Forty years, a generation will follow. Normally, what is a two-week journey from Egypt by foot to the promised land turns into 40 years. And the second generation, the children of the slaves, stand on the edge of the promised land, and they step in this time. And just like the Red Sea parted, so the Jordan River parts before them. And what follows in the book of Joshua, as we read it, is an exaction of justice against evil Canaanites. The Canaanites, whose extreme moral corruption, including sexual sin, grievous sexual sin, and child sacrifice, is punished. What we're witness to in the book of Joshua is God's justice against human evil, deep human evil. It is a precursor. It is a warning of the final days for us. Now let me take you to our third vignette, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Here's our third stop. This is the evening before Jericho, that, that 
big city in Jericho, right? It's on the border of the promised land, and like any good border town, it's got lots of defenses. It's got thick walls. It's got weapons. It's got warriors. It looks like you can't take this city. That's not how it plays out, though. Joshua 5, verse 13, lest there be any doubt who's really going to battle. We see this scene. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. This man is ready for battle. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man said, No. Not for you, not for your enemies. I'm for the Lord. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now look at this verse in verse 15. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And you've read that before, haven't you? Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. That's the exact wording that came in Exodus chapter 3 when God, Yahweh, introduces himself to Moses. This holy God has arrived on the scene. And the holy God in his presence, the ground is holy around him. And Joshua is called to take off his sandals because you, Joshua, are standing in the presence of God. God has arrived. Specifically, we're told that this is the commander of the Lord's army. And that helps me think about someone later I would read about in Scripture who would tell others, the rulers of the temporal world around him, don't you think I could call down legions of angels? Don't you think I could command the Lord's armies to come and rescue me? The commander of the Lord's army has come. God has arrived. God will fight the battle. God will win. You don't need to do anything, Joshua. Just show up. Only God can do it. I promised you, Joshua, I would give you this land, and now I'm going to do it. And oh boy, does he. The Israelites walk out, and for seven days, all they do is walk in, play instruments, and shout. Do you know what that's called? That's called a worship service. And God crumbles the defenses of the enemy. They win because God fights the battle in their place. And nothing can stop God when he fights battles in your place. And his people win. And the words come back to us. You search the scriptures. And it is they that bear witness about me. The Israelites take possession of the land. And look at how the story ends in Joshua. This is Joshua 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. 
and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of, the, of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Now this, verse 45, highlight this. Not one word of the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Everything happened. Everything happened. Obedience by the people, savoring the favor of God as the people of God. Now walk in to the land that God has given them. By the way, before we leave this story, Joshua's name means Yahweh, the Lord, saves in Hebrew. In Aramaic, that name, the Lord saves, is Jesus. God's got a checklist, and he ticks his third box now. They got a place now to live. Got time for one more? God's king, number four. God's king, partially commanding. One last vignette, one last story highlighting. I want you to turn with me in advance to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. I'll be there in a second. The Israelites enter the land, and they do exactly, listen, exactly what Moses and Joshua said they would do. They disobey. They turn away from this blessing. They begin to surrender blessing after blessing after blessing. And you and I read the book of Judges groaning as the spiral of wickedness widens evermore. And even the leaders appointed by God to save the wicked people are themselves in so many ways deplorable. And the people who up until this point have had God at the center of their camp as God as their king now turn to the last judge, Samuel, and say, give us a king, a real king with five fingers and, or ten fingers and ten toes. Give us a man who will be king over us. You know, like the other nations have. We want to be like everybody else. And so God, rejected by his people, gives them their wishes. And the people endure the corruption and the wickedness of Saul. But God has a bigger plan in mind, and nothing will stop that plan. God chooses a man who would seek after him with his whole heart. He chooses a man whose heart echoes the Lord's heart in so many ways. He chooses a shepherd boy. The eighth son of Jesse, David. And when the armies of the Philistines approach the land of Israel one day and send forth their champion, Goliath, covered in scales of armor to blaspheme the living God, to blaspheme the people of God, the boy David steps in to answer. It should have been Saul, he was the king. But David comes as a substitute, a substitute despised and rejected by his brothers. He walks in. And David says these words in 1 Samuel 17. Look at verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. 
Verse 48, when the, Pharise- when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling, a piece of leather, and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And then the text tells us there was no sword in the hand of David. And then we read this in verse 51. This is not a Sunday school verse, but here it is. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, David's sword? No, he didn't have one. He took Goliath's sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, just as David predicted, just as God promised. God has brought the victory here by a little young man, despised and rejected, who takes the sword of his enemy and cuts off the head of his enemy. The blasphemer, the blasphemer who is covered in scales, is defeated by the substitute. The head is crushed by the unlikely person. He is killed by his own weapon. God's people are saved by someone who was despised and rejected by others. Do you see him? The one who is despised and rejected, who serves as the substitute in our place, the one who is considered as nothing by his own people, has brought us salvation. And then we think how the enemy's weapon was picked up and used against him. And Satan laughs as Jesus hangs on a cross, and three days later, he's not laughing. When the cross has been picked up and the head of the, of the enemy has been crushed with the cross, defeated by his own sword is Satan. Do you see him? You search the scriptures and it's they that bear witness about me. And then with that, God's checklist is complete. Now I've got them someone to rule over. I've done all that I've promised. Everything has been done. Now let me finish this message. David becomes the king, and he's a great king. In fact, his heart longs to see the Lord be placed in a permanent dwelling. As David dwells in a nice house, he wants that for the Lord. And that desire of the Lord is commended by God. And God says, for that heart alone, I will make you a house, David. Not of four walls, but a kingdom. And you will not lack a king to sit on your throne. The good promises of God given to David. And then four chapters later, David sleeps with a married woman, kills her husband, and tries to cover it up. As great as this warrior is, as godly as this man was, David is not perfect. Something greater is needed. Something is missing in the partial kingdom. Blessing is lost as a result of this, as the relationship between David and God is fractured, and the relationship between Israel and God continues to be fractured. The partial kingdom passes then from David to his son Solomon, and then from Solomon to a host of others. 
And we read the rest of the historical books. We read of a civil war happening, of foreign invaders happening, of famines happening, of innocent people being killed, of foreign gods being worshipped, of sexual immorality and child sacrifice returning to the land of blessing as God's commands are forgotten and mocked. And God sends warning after warning after warning after warning after warning until finally it's enough. And God says, enough! Now, now! Now is the time they come out of the land. And as the foreign armies of Assyria and Babylon come to take them away, the story ends with this last king. In 586 B.C., standing before the great king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is Zedekiah. Now captured, we read in 2 Kings 25. They captured the king, and they brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon where he would die. Sons are gone. The king is gone. That's how it ends. That's how the story ends. No land no blessing, no king, no people. The partial kingdom falls. The sins of man have defeated the promises of God. Who could hold out hope? When Jerusalem lays in ruins, its walls are broken down, its temple's been ransacked, its king's been taken away, its people have been brought into exile, its missions defeated, God's presence removed. Obviously, the kingdom is done. We were going through a third of our Bible, though, today. There's still two-thirds left. The story isn't done. Not by a long shot. No, no, no. Because this was just a partial kingdom. There is coming a king, the real king. And this king, depicted in the Passover, depicted in the Day of the Atonement, coming as the commander of the Lord's army, the real giant slayer is coming. And when this king is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. When this king comes, the final victory bell will be sounded, and there will be nothing that will undo his kingdom. When this king comes, it's game on and game over. But that's where the story continues next week. What do we do today? What's for us today? What about this week? You came in here maybe struggling today? Things going on in your life? Came in here struggling today, don't know how to make the next step, to face the work day on Monday, face the struggle in your home, face the struggle in your marriage, face the struggle with others outside. What's, what about you? What about you? You got the struggle in your own heart with your own sin. What about me? Maybe life's got you in a place of feeling like, you know what? That story sounds a lot like me. That's where I am, man. Is there any hope? 
yeah, man, we're just a third of the way through. You know the hope. It's coming. Romans chapter 15 on screen for you here says this. For whatever was written, this is Paul talking about the Old Testament, talking about the stories we were talking about. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Three applications today. Application number one, through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. Application number one, wow. We should be walking out of here today saying, what a story God has written. I've seen the amazing plan of God and the amazing planner behind the plan. What an incredible story that God moves in and through faulty, failing human beings to accomplish his great purposes, even despite their sin. Wow. Encouragement. Endurance. Application number two. Keep running, son. Keep running, daughter. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one who was in the Old Testament is with you now today, walking you through your trial, your difficulty, your pain, your heart. Keep running, son. Keep following me. I've got you. I will hold you. I will carry you. You don't need to be strong. I'm all the strength you need. Application number three. This life is not all there is. There is a kingdom coming. There is a king coming. There is a life so much greater. Let's pray. God, we cling to these promises today. As we speak right now to the one, the God who accomplished all of this, the one who gave promises and then made good on every single one of those promises. We talk to you now, the one who has promised us to never leave us and never forsake us, the one who has promised us that someday soon he will bring us to be with him in his presence, the one who has promised us that death will not reign, that sin will not reign, that the enemy will not reign, that this time right now is a light momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We talk to you now, the God who is faithful, the God who is worthy to be trusted, the God who is powerful, the God that can do all things whenever he wants, however he wants, and the God who will carry us to the finish line. Someday soon, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. We thank you, Lord, right now that we, on this side of the story, and the other two-thirds of God's word know how it ends. And wow. We thank you for your plan. We thank you for your love for us that brings endurance. We thank you for your truth that brings us this great hope. And now, Lord, as we finish our time here together, we pray that you would be drawing forth your people to sing out in praise to you, the one who is worthy of trust, the one who is worthy of glory, the one who is worthy of all praise. As we sing to you, Lord Jesus, now, we pray this in your name. Amen.